Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. In this episode, Dr. Arthur Succo, a self-described drug hunter, discusses his pathway to becoming CEO of TDX Pharma, a company working on overcoming challenges with drug delivery. Let's listen. Welcome back, everyone, to the OIS Retina Podcast. This is, again, Faraz Rahal of Retina Vitreous Associates here in Los Angeles and also of Excite Ventures in New York. And I have today as my guest a good friend of mine and a colleague, uh, Dr. Artie Succo, who is the CEO of a company known as DTX Pharma. We're going to hear a lot about that today. Uh, Artie has a long history in biomedical sciences. He has a PhD from UC San Diego in biomedical sciences and pharmacology. He's an expert in this area. Obviously, we can't wait to hear about some of the science that they're doing. Um, and he, I think, is the co-founder or the founder of the company. Artie, uh, first of all, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show with me. Well, thank you for having me for us. Tell us about your own uh, personal background. I read from some of the aspects of your bio that you had previous positions with AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, both very famous right now. They're in the news a lot, as you know, <laughs> <laughs> for maybe different reasons, although you can share with us if there's any overlap. And Regulus, something I'm not familiar with, Regulus Therapeutics. And again, you had previously received a doctoral degree from UCSD in biomedical sciences pharmacology. Tell us a little bit about some of those previous positions and were you working at that time with the fatty acid molecules and the peptides conjugated to fatty acids as I read about. Yeah, so um, maybe I'll start. Um, well, it's interesting how things come full circle. So I did my undergrad at University of Delaware and I actually did ophthalmic uh, research um, uh, at University of Delaware. To be honest with you, I thought that was the last time I would do uh, research in the eye, I studied the cornea. But anyway, um, come come to you know how I came to know fatty acids, you know did my uh, PhD at, at UCSD, all in, in diabetes. I studied pancreatic islets, the insulin secreting cells. Went to Johnson and Johnson, stayed in the diabetes space. Uh, from there, uh, like you said, AstraZeneca again, diabetes space. Uh, the difference between J and J and AstraZeneca was J and J was small molecules. AstraZeneca was biologics, like antibody, you know, antibodies, peptide conjugates. Um, and then, uh, you know, Miss San Diego, um, you know, the beautiful weather in San Diego. Um, and uh, uh, joined a company called Regulus Therapeutics. And, and that's where I came to know the problem that DTX works on, uh, delivery of RNA therapeutics. Um, but it was really, um, uh, you know, work that I had um, been involved in at, at J&J um, in working on fatty additive receptors for small molecule diabetes drugs and work at AstraZeneca looking at fatty acids as a mean to, means to project, protract the half-life of uh, peptide diabetes drugs that, that sort of served as the inspiration uh, for DTX. So the, the, the work at Regulus was with was with RNA therapies, and that did involve these long chain fatty acids at the time too. What were you doing there exactly? Yeah, so um, no fatty acid work uh, uh, really at Regulus. So Regulus was, um, there's all sorts of flavors of RNA therapeutics, um, and they worked on uh, 
microRNA, which is kind of nature's um, siRNA, um, and it, it regulates many different uh, processes. But but it was there. Um, I was in charge of of uh, sort of thinking about new ways to deliver these medicines. Uh, it turned out that they went on under went a lot of change, and and throughout my year there, I worked on CNS I. Uh, diabetes and NASH, uh, as well as delivery. So that's probably more a reflection of the change going on there. Um, but what I came to know there was the, the delivery challenge with RNA therapeutics that has sort of plagued the space for, you know, over 30 years, right? Cells don't take these molecules up at all, and they're rapidly cleared by the kidney. And so, you know, outside of like local indications like the eye, um, have being rapidly cleared by the kidney precludes um, exposure to like heart muscle where there's lots of opportunities for RNA medicines, but if you can't get them there, you know, how are they going to work? So when you were at Regulus, you're working in the RNA therapy space, but they weren't specifically like you are now working on a, a niche area of delivery of the molecules. That's something you observed in the challenges in doing the work itself. Yeah. Is that how the genesis of DTX came about? Tell me about how these positions ended up leading you to where you are now and how, how you, it led you to form DTX. Yeah, there's lots to this story. You know, part of it is, you know, why did I even want to start a company to begin with to, to part of it? How did the Genesis? Cause you're uh, masochistic. <laughs> <laughs> I do go back and think about uh, what I was thinking three years ago <laughs> that kept me going from day to day from time to time. But anyways, um, you know, um, the genesis of DTX is kind of, uh, you know, twofold. And maybe I'll start with why did, you know, why was I inspired to start a company and sort of my career path and what, what um, you know, what I was thinking as I was at AstraZeneca and J&J &J and then what, you know, how DTX came. And so um, it turned out while I was in grad school, there's something called the minor proposition and you have to come out with your own idea outside of, of, uh, you know, whatever your thesis work is. And so I presented that idea to my committee and, uh, you know, shortly thereafter the, um, you know, one of the advisors had said there was an investment group that was interested in investing in this idea, you know, unrelated to DTX. Um, but it ended up getting funded and, um, became a lab that I worked in that was outside of the university. Um, that I've reduced it to practice. And so what I realized pretty quickly there, even though the idea worked, was that, you know, having two years of experience at grad school was not uh, sufficient to build a biotech company. But so I stored it in the, the back of my mind that, or, or I mean, it sort of became my ambition to get appropriate experience in drug development. So one day I could come back and, and do that. And so finished grad school, but, you know, while I was at J&J and AstraZeneca, I was always, you know, trying to interact with, um, you know, people far smarter than me who had more experience um, to learn all about different aspects of drug development. It was kind of why I moved from large pharma to biotech was, you know, at Regulus, I um, maybe uh, aspirationally thought that I'd learn how to build a biotech, you know, do, you know, relationships, raise money, um, et cetera. Obviously that didn't work out, but fortunately, um, you know, I guess, uh, for the, the prospects of building a business, um, what I did learn at Regulus was, as I mentioned, this delivery challenge and why I thought 
um, you know, with my colleagues, Adam and John thought that fatty acids were the solution for the delivery challenge uh, was essentially because they kill two birds with one stone. And so, you know, every cell in your body has a mechanism to take up fatty acids. And so you could imagine leveraging those mechanisms to bring these molecules into cells. The other reason we really liked fatty acids is they were a tried and true mechanism. Um, and, and I learned this at AstraZeneca for promoting biodistribution. So there's, there's four multi-billion dollar peptide drugs in the diabetes space that leverage fatty acids on the peptide for half-life extension. And so what um, those peptides do, or what do those fatty acids do is they bind to a protein in the blood called albumin. And albumin kind of serves as an Uber to maintain exposure of those drugs over prolonged periods of time. Um, and so that was the same fundamental problem that, that RNA therapy, you know, peptide therapeutics, what fatty acids did for peptide therapeutics is, um, you know, the same problem that RNA therapeutics face, rapid clearance by the kidney. And so, you know, uh, saw that as really underexplored relative to what others had done with fatty acids in the RNA therapeutics space. And that was sort of the inspiration for the idea gained, you know, traction with investors, you know, at least early on to reduce it to practice. That's amazing. So the fatty acid moieties have been, I won't say commonly, but previously used to attach to peptides to increase half-life, say, in the circulation. Does that also relate to their penetrance into cells like you're talking about here? Or is that strictly because of the allurin phenomenon that you've discussed? Yeah, in that context, it's all about, they're not, the drugs don't need to get into cells per se. Okay. They, you're trying to get them to cells to interact with like the insulin receptor or that there's another drug called GLP-1 that's important for uh, promoting insulin secretion in beta cells. So, so in that context, those success stories are really about keeping drugs in circulation longer. Did you have exposure to this fatty acid concept while you were a grad student? Is that when you first thought about it? Was it later on after you saw the challenge in RNA technologies entering cells that it came to you that this might be useful there? I never thought that I would use fatty acids again. <laughs> Either, I mean, when I left J&J, we worked on these, these fatty acid receptors for diabetes. You know, the fatty acids were ligands for these receptors. Um, you know, wrote a, a, a paper and a review article, thought that was the end of my career in fatty acids. <laughs> came to, you know, AstraZeneca, you know, where we used fatty acids on peptides for half-life extension. Again, thought that was the end, <laughs> end of <laughs> fatty acids. And then, you know, when I saw that, that you know, the, the, the setback in RNA therapeutics was delivery, I sort of uh, reminisced on my experiences at J&J &J and AstraZeneca and say, man, it just seems like there's probably a way you can, um, there's, I didn't necessarily know the exact confirmation or configuration, but it seemed like, you know, as reasonable hypothesis as any, um, that this could work. Um, and so, yeah. And so, and in grad school had, there was nothing, never even thought about drug development in any meaningful way. <laughs> You're too humble to say it, but it seems to me as a simple guy, that's how great scientists come up with great science. That story is a great story of how one puts together two pieces of a puzzle that are remote from one another in time and space. And uh, this is 
this is how great ideas come about. You deserve a lot of credit for that. Would you say this is novel uh, to attach the these moieties to RNA technology? Is this the first DTX and you the first of its kind? I will. I won't claim that we are the first company to attach fatty acids to siRNAs or antisense oligos. People have tried it since you know 2006. You know what I think is. In some ways, there's a fortunate coincidence of cross-fertilization here, having seen um, this in other uh, contexts that it seemed obvious to me that, that folks had tried to attach fatty acids to siRNAs um, and tried all different ones, um, but sort of didn't um, you know, have the same appreciation that, that we brought to the space of how they actually interact with receptors and albumin to be able to leverage that, that knowledge. So you know, people tried, um, you know, you probably have, everyone's probably heard of cholesterol, right? Um, mm-hmm. People tried attaching cholesterol and it, it, it worked um, reasonably well, um, but, you know, uh, cholesterol hasn't been safely deployed for anything, um, whether peptide or otherwise. So that, that didn't work out. And you, you'll even see, you know, um, publications all the way through last year of people attaching a single um, fatty acid. You know, so, so the idea of using fatty acids is by no means novel. I think what we, you know, brought to the table was a, um, you know, we had conviction that fatty acids were the solution and we more aggressively um, pursued, uh, you know, different numbers, orientations, lens, all different kinds of variables. The way I kind of think about it, um, honestly, is like small molecule drug development, right? You get a hit it's like a one micromolar hit, it, it, it barely binds, it's active. And so that's kind of what, where the field was, you know, when we came to the scene. And then we did SAR, more chemistry, um, to optimize the way those are presented to cells and to make, you know, orders of magnitude improvement. So that's, I guess that's the way that, the incremental benefit that we brought to the space. I understand, so that, I'm, th- that brings me right to the, topic I want to move into, which is the company, of course, um, that you founded. It's called DTX. Start by, and because I've never known this, even though uh, for the audience, I'm an investor uh, through Excite, uh, our group is one of the investors in your company. How did you come up with the name DTX? What does it mean? Yeah, this is kind of, it, it's, it's, you're going to get a kick out of this. So <laughs> I've been dying to ask you, actually, <laughs> this came, this gave me an excuse to ask you. So there's multiple um, there's multiple answers to this. So I think the honest answer is um, the first hundred names we came up with, maybe more, because I remember the email conversations between the founders, um, were all you know either taken from a website perspective or we couldn't afford the domain. <laughs> um, so I guess we ultimately settled for for delivery technologies. So that's what the DT stands for. And then where you're going to kick, get a kick out of this is the X actually comes from, uh, you know, when I was younger and I had instant messenger, I used to use the X as spaces between initials in my screen name. And so my screen name was uh, Michael Jordan, X, uh, MJX, SPXDR, Scotty Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and the X's were spaces. So DT was taken, so we added the X as the space, you know. What was cool about the X is on the logo, you know, almost immediately you could imagine building like a little siRNA off of the X. Um, so 
you got, I mean, be careful what you ask for in the answer to the question. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great answer. It's very honest. It could have easily been DT underscore given that. <laughs> I guess right? so. Given I like I, DX. I, By the way, X's and Z's are very popular with the Madison Avenue drug develop name developers. The guys who, cause I did this as a resident for extra money when I was a resident in New York city, back in the very early 1990s, they'd have focus groups and they would want to name uh, drugs. Many of them are out on the market now. And uh, sure enough, 20 years later, I saw these uh, glaucoma drugs coming out that had Z's and X's in them because these Madison <laughs> Avenue gurus knew that would be catchy. And it really, if you take a look at an inventory of ophthalmology uh, eye drops in the commercial world, a lot of them have X's and Z's. So you did well by the, the Madison <laughs> Avenue guys would have agreed with you. <laughs> so look, let's talk a little bit about the technology. It's fascinating. At the same time, it's complicated. It's hard for some of us regular folk to understand it. It's uh, siRNA, and for everyone listening, small interfering RNAs. Um, tell us a little bit broadly and as simplistically as you feel you can deliver the message. What does this mean? How does the siRNA work? What 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 is the therapeutic effect that might be gained by using this technology? Yeah, so my, my simplistic way of, you know, ex explaining this is, you know, DNA, you've got the code, um, the DNA, that DNA, um, you know, is, uh, I mean, it's almost like a cookbook, it's, it's, it's transcribed into a message, and then the message results in a protein that does all the work. And so um, the way RNA drugs work, or siRNAs work, is they essentially chop up the message right? They, they cleave it, they clip it, they make sure that um, there's not going to be any message around. And then therefore that prevents the expression of, of the protein. Um, and so why do you want to get rid of the protein? And so there's lots of, you know, we hear about mutations and genetics. And so there's mutations in genes that lead to proteins um, that are toxic to cells or take on functions that, that you don't want. And so by, you know, intercepting the message, um, or preventing the expression of the message, you can prevent the expression of the disease-causing uh, protein. And I don't. Maybe it's helpful because this is an eye, um, you know, podcast. Um, I could use an example gene like rhodopsin, right? We know in retinitis pigmentosa, for example, um, mutations in rhodopsin um, lead to uh, uh, blindness. And so in this case. Um, you know, you'd use an siRNA therapeutic to get rid of uh, the mutant rhodopsin um, to prevent um, the disease. So, or present, prevent, you know, retinitis pigmentosa. So I hopefully I broke it down simple enough. <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense the way you propose it, which is ultimately the protein is the product. And along the way, you're breaking up the, the messaging system, the building system. So, this is uh, uh, going to block the formation of proteins. You would never use it in reverse to try to create a new protein that's better. That's a different form of gene therapy. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's, um, so broadly speaking, RNA therapeutics, it also encompasses what, what you're suggesting, kind of replacing the mRNA. And it's, it's timely um, because, uh, you know, that's the, the mRNA technology is what, um, you know, Moderna and Pfizer are using for the COVID-19 COVID vaccines. 
Excellent. That's very clear. It, and for some of my listeners who've been around uh, for a while uh, treating ophthalmology patients since the 90s, I'll bring up a product that maybe you can comment on. This, as you mentioned, this has been a concept sort of circulating biomedical space for 30 years. In ophthalmology, we did have some brief experience with it in the 90s. I believe it was an siRNA, but it may have been something called antisense. And if there's a difference, maybe you can help us what, what those differences are. The product was called later, uh, I think commercially, Fulmiversin. It was used for CMV retinitis. Uh, I knew the person who developed it or helped to develop it in New York, a great clinician at Mount Sinai. Uh, and I was treating a lot of CMV retinitis in the 90s. And, and this was fairly popular as it came on but it didn't have, uh, didn't last too long. It may have been because CMV as a disease kind of diminished away with much better HIV treatment. Do you know about that drug and what was that exactly? Or, and, and what's the difference, if any, between siRNA and antisense? Um, yes. So maybe I'll start with the latter part of the question, which yeah. is there are, you know, as you kind of uh, elucidated, there are different flavors of, uh, you know, gene suppressing RNA therapeutics. And so there's siRNA that I just described. And then there's, um, and, and, and you know, if we get into the you know, hardcore molecular biology, the, the difference between siRNA is they work in the cytoplasm, the antisense molecules, they work within the nucleus. Okay. Um, and so that's a fundamental um, difference. They just use different, um, you know, protein complex complexes to accomplish the same end, to chop up, um, you know, to get rid of the, the, the message. Um, and so maybe coming back to vitravine, I, I think you actually answered the question on, on what happened to those, those, that drug. Um, it, it went extinct because of heart therapy. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I think it was, no, I'm blanking on the name. Um, who was it? Uh, in any case, whoever it was withdrew marketing um, authorization in 2004 and 2006 because um, there was no market to sell the drugs to any, you know, anymore. Um, I guess other, um, probably other points related to, um, you know, siRNAs versus um, antisense. Um, uh, our enthusiasm for siRNAs, maybe I'll start there, is, is they're, they're quite a bit more potent, you know, anywhere from a hundred to a thousand fold more potent than an ASO to accomplish the same end, um, repressing, repression of, of gene expression. They also have a really long duration of action following a single injection. They can last as much as a year, um, which is obviously really attractive when we talk about the eye. And then uh, one other, um, you know, Maybe this is going into the weeds uh, a bit, but I'm, I think your audience will be very familiar with some of these drugs. This antisense, um, not only can it can be used to repress the expression of genes, but can it also do something uh, called exon skipping? And you'll, you know, you'll you'll have heard of many of these drugs. I'm sure you've heard of ProQR. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got a product for retinitis pigmentosa for LCA. And, and the reality is, you know, those are exon skipping is where antisense has shined. And so 
Um, I'll actually defer to you on whether you want me to take a stab at explaining Exxon skipping <laughs> um, or whether we want to move to another another topic. But but just, you know, there's lots of flavors of these things. They can accomplish different things um, for different purposes. I actually would like to hear, but I'm going to let it go because I know you could do it well and everyone would understand it. But I want to get into some of the clinical stuff that you and I have course talked about and is more familiar to me and most of the audience members. By the way, I think that company you were looking for, I think it was called Isis Pharmaceuticals that brought that product to market. And it was a good product. Uh, there were a lot of good products for CMB in those days. So the first eye indication for your product uh, in the eye space, again, is retinitis pigmentosa, if I'm, if I'm correct. How did you come to this? And Specifically within that disease, what are you what are you aiming at? What's the product going to do? Yeah, so we were always um, uh, very interested in the eye for this class of medicines. In some ways, we viewed the eye as a good place to understand the technology without the confounding effects of you know uh, biodistribution or rapid clearance by the kidney. We also, you know, really like the eye because it's a compartmentalized approach. This class has a, a really long duration of action following a single injection. And so I'm sure you're familiar with all the, the VEGF products and trying to take them from monthly to quarterly to six months to, to yearly. And so we always were attracted to using RNA therapeutics because they have that built-in long duration of action. Um, and then there's there was also, you know, uh, reasonably compelling advantages versus gene therapy in terms of, you know, the number of cells with a genetic lesion that you can access, so distribution. So how we came uh, to work on, on, on RP um, is interesting. We um, uh, came across a literature through actually someone we both know, Dan Chow, that uh, was, uh, it's an approach that's meant to be agnostic to the underlying genetics, driving uh, the disease. And, and so, you know, uh, we, we put that up against, uh, other programs in RP that would more specifically address an underlying genetic lesion. And so, you know, just, uh, you know, demonstrated it, it worked in, you know, wild type mice and then a couple different, I think three different, uh, rodent models of the disease. And then pitted up against other projects in the company and, and went out to, the KOLs in inherited retinal degenerations and, and ask them, you know, which uh, of these potential products are you most excited about? And, and our approach to, you know, our agnostic approach to the underlying genetics driving RP um, was unanimously selected. <laughs> and so we've been pushing that forward ever, ever since. You're talking about the one that's specifically agnostic to the genetics of the RP. Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the challenges, and you probably know this as well as I do, one of the challenges with, with RP is it's, it's genetically diverse. There are 100 genes, 300 mutations, and it's really hard um, you know, to, to isolate any one of these genes um, and develop a drug for it because there's not many patients um, with any specific um, uh, lesion. And then not at a, they're not typically at a time point where intervention is likely um, to work. And so that's why um, I think everyone was attracted to this approach that could work in more than one mutation. So that makes a lot of sense. And I agree with your KOLs, by the way, with the, with the strategy. And we've talked about this, you and I. Um, so it would be applicable 
to most all comers with RP? What about um, applicability to say different stages of disease? Do you think this product would be more uh, likely to be helpful early stage disease, mid or even advanced stages uh, at bare light perception or you know those patients? Yeah, I think it's um, more in the, I mean, the prophylactic category than sort of late stage. One of the, the, the major challenges with retinitis pigmentosa, at least as I understand it, not having studied it for my entire um, career, is that, you know, you, what happens is you have the death of the photoreceptor cells. And so, um, as I understand it, if, if you don't have photoreceptor cells, it, none of the treatments are going to be able to work. And so just by kind of definition of the disease, you have to start early to prevent the death of those, those photoreceptor cells. And that's, um, so the, the earlier, the better, um, I think, you know, would be uh, the strategy uh, for this particular approach. Yeah, I agree totally. I think for those really late stage um, disease categories, there's different paradigms, which we won't get into great detail on here. Optogenetics is being, you know, attempted there. As you know, from Second Sight, there have been some electronic, you know, devices attempted there. But for uh, a product like yours, yeah, early and mid-stage makes a lot more sense. Where are you with the preclinical development now of this product? Yeah, so we, we've nominated, I guess, in drug development, what we call clinical candidates now. We did that earlier this year. And so that means that we're triggering the, the, the characterization and the safety that would support uh, first in human dosing uh, sometime in 2022. Um, and so we're moving through monkey and, and rabbit studies that, that would um, support a safety package um, you know, that, that would allow us to advance the, the program. So you would be, your goal would be to have uh, start a human clinical trials in 2022 with this product? That's pretty near term. So you're already doing currently uh, or are about to do uh, non-human primates? Yeah, so we're doing, um, uh, we're at the dose range finding stage of our, our talk studies. And those are, you know, usually you do those in two, two species. And it's, it's safe to assume that one of those is non-human primates. Okay, great. That's pretty far along. What about the... Um, the corporate development, again, for full transparency, I, I, as a member of Excite, I'm an investor, so I'm aware of some of this. I'm aware that you had a, a great close to a raise recently. I think that's been public. Uh, what can you tell us about that recent raise that you feel comfortable to talk about, and where do you expect that to take you, and who is involved? Yeah, the big, the big announcement is we raised, um, you know, about a month ago, we raised $100 million dollars. Um, uh, you know, from a combination of um, our existing um, early investors, um, as well as um, RA Capital, Access, Janet, Cormorant, Surveyor, and uh, Eli Lilly, um, who was also an, you know, an investor in our series, series A. In terms of um, where we expect that, to, um, that, that capital to, to get us, you know, specifically with respect to the eye, I mean, our goal is to get into um, human studies with that capital, um, demonstrate safety and identify appropriate doses to move into, um, you know, studies where we would understand, uh, you know, understand whether this is a, a potential mechanism to prevent the pathogenesis of RP. 
of course, um, that's a lot of money and, and we're doing other things. And so we're working in other therapeutic areas, um, including uh, neuromuscular applications of the technology. The goal is to take one of those programs into phase one and, and potentially even some early proof of concept in patients there. And then, you know, we have aspirations to, you know, break open other therapeutic areas for this class of therapeutics. And, um, you know, we want to remain the leaders in leveraging fatty acids. And so um, to overcome the delivery challenges in the space. So there's, there's some effort to understand it in, in new areas like the CNS or oncology. You got me to a point I wanted to get to with you. And thank you for that. The other programs you're looking at. And I knew that you're in the new neuromuscular space or, or, or pursuing that. I didn't know about the oncology. Have you already started any work in the oncology space now, or is that for later? That I would just say for later for now. It's on it's on the to-do list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's ruminating inside your brain? I don't count that as now. We'll count that. That's the now, the, the real stuff later. I get it. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Eli Lilly because it's one of the things I wanted to bring up. I know they were an early investor with you. I know I had spoken with them in a group call when we were, you know, doing diligence uh, on DTX with you and with them. And we were very impressed with their level of knowledge and understanding of this space. Um, we, were, we were very happy to join in the round when they came in. Uh, how's it been having a company like that, a strategic with such experience and, uh, and broad wings to come in so early? There, there's obviously value add. How did you view that? Yeah, I mean... We, you know, we've gotten lots of um, value out of that, that relationship. I mean, first and foremost, you know, for, for the way this company was, was kind of built up, uh, you know, from the ground up, you know, it was really important that we had external validation of what we are doing, what we were doing, um, you know, outside of the, the local San Diego ecosystem. And so, you know, by Eli Lilly taking a look at the, the technology, and saying this is sufficiently interesting that we'll put some some money behind it um, was really important um, uh, in our development. Um, we also got um, the benefit of having um, their their CSO at the time of RNA Therapeutics, um, Andrew Adams, on our board, who's you know understands space really well. He understands how to create value in the, the space, and it allowed us to um, you know get get some insight into how. Um, you know, potential partners, potential acquirers, you know, look at these opportunities and, and the data sets that, that you need to take, need to have to create value um, uh, in the area. So, I mean, you know, very significant inflection point and, and, and very valuable for the, to have that relationship. I know you've added some great people in recent months, uh, and obviously you just had this excellent raise. Congratulations. Are there some corporate growth areas that you're uh, eyeing right now, or are you kind of in a steady state and just going on to do more science? Uh, we're definitely not in a steady, a steady state. I mean, we, we are uh, a data-driven and R&D company. And so, you know, a good chunk of our investment is in, in filling out our team with folks that are experts in ophthalmology, experts in neuromuscular um, diseases, both internally and, and externally. Um, now that we're, we're bigger, there are, um, you know, we have to build out the, um, operations arm of, of the company. So we, you know, we will 
be looking to add a, a CFO and, and a VP of finance, um, clinical operations, um, et cetera. And um, maybe, I, maybe we've, we've discussed this, but we, we brought on uh, Denise Bevers as our, our chief operating officer um, who you know, has, has lots of experience uh, building, building companies and taking companies public. Brian Lafitte, our, our CSO um, from Novartis, and, and Chuck to, to lead um, the chemistry. And he has you know, uh, 20 years of experience in oligo therapeutics. So um, you know, uh, those, those uh, folks uh, much more knowledgeable about all those areas than, than me are really um, you know, uh, leading the charge in terms of building out uh, the, you know, the, the, the talent that will keep this company um, remaining leaders in the space. And that probably means you get to take off some of the hats, but it probably, it won't reduce your workload. I know you're a hard worker and you've led this company amazingly. Uh, were you previously functioning as the CSO as well as the CEO, so to speak, uh, prior to bringing in the recent folks? As you know, my, I've been a uh, drug hunter for my whole career. And so, um, <laughs> When I, you know, when be careful how we reference that later, but drug hunter by day and night. Um, um, anyway, the um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, when I when when we started GTX, John, Adam, and me, I, I didn't feel comfortable, um, you know, calling myself the CEO um, because my background was really the CSO. Um, yeah. Uh, background and so, I guess uh, more re recently, as uh, you know, the company has grown, and I've I've had to prove myself, maybe prove to myself that I was capable of doing some of the the non science related um, uh, aspects of a, a CEO. Um, thought you know, you know, I guess I feel in my own head I transitioned to a CEO, um, but also I think it's really important. Um, as you know, I spent a lot of time. Uh, raising uh, capital, meeting with investors, um, you know, putting infrastructure in, in place to support the company. I thought it was important, especially with the programs, to bring on someone like Brian, kind of pass the baton, who you know has done this over and over again, more times than I've done it, um, to really you know uh, take some of the um, you know uh, or divide and conquer. I guess you could say is is the best way to way to put it. So. Um, you know, was really, you know, really enthusiastic to, to bring him on board to help bring these programs forward. Well, usually it is true that uh, the scientist guy, which is you for sure, uh, might have to give some thought to, can I be the CEO guy? Well, you, you I'll say as an investor and now your friend, uh, you've done it in spades. You did train yourself in whatever way. And if this recent raise isn't proof, you know, there's a hundred million reasons that you have been able to successfully, and I mean this only half jokingly, to successfully build the infrastructure and lead the program, not just with science, but with management that people are believing in you and, and they're putting their money in for a good reason. And you should be congratulated. That's a hard thing to do to wear both of those hats and you've done it very well and you're probably pretty tired a lot of the times. <laughs> One final question, um, really uh, on the eye, we've had some very casual conversations, you and I in the past about indications outside of RP. You mentioned the non-eye stuff, the neuromuscular. What about in the eye? Other indications you're considering? 
Yeah, I mean, we definitely are looking for um, you know other opportunities in the eye. I would say nothing has really gained traction in the way that RP has gained traction. Um, and we've, you know, we've looked, uh, as you know, uh, we've looked across a whole host of, you know, potential opportunities, not, you know, not limited to, you know, the genetic uh, variants of RP we discussed, dry eye, uveitis, fuchs, um, wet uh, AMD. Um, and so, you know, what, what has uh, limited us or, or sort of prevented us from taking a shot um, in some of those areas is in, in part the competitive landscape. You know, when we pick indications for DTX, I always say we, we pick indications where if we're successful, we will win, um, you know, because we're addressing either the underlying genetic lesion and we can be the first to do that. Um, or, you know, because, you know, the, the, you know, the competitive landscape and in, in other opportunities um, is favorable. Um, but we're definitely still working through um, the, 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 the process of identifying other opportunities in the eye. And I'm sure there's one there that, that fits the criteria. <laughs> we just, uh, you know, aren't ready to announce it just yet or, or commit to it just yet. That dialogue to be continued. We, we'd love yeah. to have you on back later as things evolve for sure. And I mean that. Artie Suko, Dr. Artie Suko, thank you for joining uh, me and, the, and the, the rest of the team at OIS for our podcast. This has been fascinating. Uh, you're doing a great job. You're to be congratulated, and I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me, and appreciate all the thoughtful questions. Thank you for listening to Dr. Suko's interesting and inspiring discussion. Be sure to register for the upcoming OIS Myopia Innovation Showcase taking place on April 29th. And come back next week for another informative discussion here on the OIS Podcast.